everyone, and welcome to Cat's Cradle, the show where I didn't actually have any idea where I was going with this intro. Today, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite thing to put on top of macaroni and cheese. It's crunch. <laughs> I, I was thinking more like cereal, but that works too. Crunch, the crunch. game design philosophy you can see. Yes. So, <laughs> wow, that was... Listener, sometimes I just start talking in the hope that I will catch myself, and sometimes I don't catch myself, listener. But I'm Cat. I'm Cat. It's true, they are. Kathleen's here with me. Mm-hmm. And we have Nick over there. We do. And we're here to talk to you about, and we are here to talk about, Crunch. It's not just for peanut butter anymore. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. So, for those of you who haven't dived particularly deep in TTRPG design discourse, crunch refers to kind of the granularity of a game's rules. It's not really something that's an objective measure, but it's how we describe a game that has rules for everything. Rules for encumbrance, for example. Minute spell failure chances on armor to account for the fact that you can't swing your arms great. These are aspects of crunch. And crunchy games are nitty gritty. They usually have a system within the game for expressing small details. They tend to be more simulationist than narrativist. And what I mean by that is that they tend to be trying to accurately simulate how events would work in the game's world rather than focusing more on the kinds of stories that can be told within that world and allowing for some fictionalization. They also tend to, but aren't always very combat-focused. They do tend to be, don't they? Mm -hmm. You could write a crunchy game about Mushroom Gathering, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, that would be great. You'd uh, have to create tables full of the various things could happen on your spore prints and various colors and textures of the thing and whether or not they stain. And you just move through table by table by table and you would figure out whether your imaginary mushroom uh, is poisonous or interesting in some way or is the one that you thought it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So today I learned that non-combat crunch is just ecology. <laughs> that actually I would listen I would play an extremely crunchy ecology game I don't know anything about it but a game where you just like take a walk in the woods and roll random encounters to see what kind of interesting mushrooms you find actually sounds extremely rad the thing is I just think that a game like that is just doing ecology or like field work yeah mm-hmm mm-hmm it very much is. And I think that, as I often say on this show, in terms of a value for tabletop role-playing game design, crunch comes from the history of war games, where you had either serious attempts to train the next generation of officers to send people off to die, or the people who wanted to pretend to be those people. And crunch in war games 
comes from a desire to simulate reality. Because reality is complicated and there's a lot of stuff that goes on in reality. And if you're building games around having random things happen, but that you have some degree of control over, the more things that can go unexpectedly, the more real it feels according to a certain sort of design philosophy, I think. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of very crunchy games for this reason, actually, in the OSR. Because while the OSR is not strictly speaking simulationist combat games, the idea of strictly random outcomes, or at least of random outcomes being more important, is a big part of OSR philosophy. So you end up having a lot of these random outcome systems in the game to make things complicated and messy for the players, because that's also a core value of, of OSR design. I would love to tell you what OSR means, but no one knows. <laughs> <laughs> Old school RuneScape. <laughs> Old school RuneScape. <laughs> and so crunch is, like so many other aspects of game design, value neutral. It's just a way of describing whether a game is or isn't complicated. <laughs> Basically, I think it's possible to make complicated games that aren't crunchy, but hard. I mean, some classic examples of that would be like chess is a really complicated game, but honestly doesn't have that many rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 You have a different move set for each of the pieces. You have a couple of weird side cases like en passant or castling or pawn promotion. But otherwise, that's about it. Almost any RPG system that has like more than a couple of roles to do everything is going to be more complicated than chess. D&D certainly is. At the same time, though, despite Crunch being kind of a value-neutral way of describing the complexity of a game's rules, it can be pretty divisive. Mm -hmm. Because some people really like complicated games. They prefer games that kind of take outcomes out of their hands and have rules for minor outcomes and have rules to make things feel like a living world. Other people are Nick. Yeah, I, I actually used to really like crunchy games. I loved going through splat books and that kind of stuff. Um, and I still enjoy like tabletop games and that sort of thing. But for RPGs these days, I'm just like old and I tire out easily and I just kind of want to play the game. Because mm. that's the thing, right? Rolling a lot of dice can be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. But if you have to first roll a lot of dice to see if all of the weapons on your giant robot hit, and then roll damage for all of the weapons, and then roll what location on the enemy robot it hit. And then roll what happens when you overheated your mech firing all those weapons. Then <laughs> mm -hmm. then you check to see if any of those weapons like punched through the armor and what happens then and if there are cascading effects from that. <laughs> That's a lot of dice rolls for something that is in the simulation supposed to happen within six seconds. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, time kind of gets away from you in more ways than one when you play very crunchy games. The first ever TTRPG I worked on was a kind of universal system 
it was originally a fantasy game, but we um, we decided to make a universal with a fantasy setting. And I remember I got a bunch of books and I sat everyone down and I was like, look, we're going to compare character creation across as many TTRPGs as I can find to see where we stand up because we do not want character creation to be excruciating in our game. And we learned some things about character creation from this exercise. And it's one that I recommend, actually, if you are making a big or crunchy game, is to compare character creation in your game with other games, like GURPS, maybe. And if you're going to make characters in GURPS, it is going to take you more than all night. You're going to need a couple nights. And your friends aren't going to love that. <laughs> or maybe they will. Maybe you'll have a good time. <laughs> Mine like... didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they yeah. they might be they might be like high school Nick who loves that sort of thing. Maybe mm -hmm. it's like a big study session where you all get together and you're all looking up all of the indices and being like, "Oh, what happens if I belong to this vampire faction? Does that mean <laughs> I do this other thing?" <laughs> yeah. Well, I think pointing out actually the vampire thing gets to a point that I like about Crunch is that when it's done well, it's there to make the world seem cooler and more flavorful and to add character to the things that you do. So, for example, your your vampire friends, you know, some, maybe your, some of your vampire friends, you know, oh, well, they're like, they have all these animal friends and they're beast masters or whatever. So they have these rules and these other vampires are very, they're socialites and they're very proper and they, they're very political. So they would have rules for that. Yeah. You can put a lot of crunch into both of those things, but really what as a designer you're getting at is you want these two characters to feel different, to occupy different spots in the setting and the lore or even mechanically like, as it turns out, a big part of crunch is separating things mechanically. Mm -hmm. I know, wild, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I love vampire. I like vampire is such a huge influence on me, as uh, I do occasionally get called out for. But I love it. And vampire has kind of a special pride of place for me because. It was the first TTRPG I ever played that wasn't Dungeons and Dragons. And compared to D&D, &D, Vampire is smooth. Vampire is very smooth compared to D&D. &D. There's many fewer rules in White Wolf games than there are in Dungeon Dragon. I mean, I wouldn't call White Wolf games particularly smooth narrativist minimalist pieces especially not these days, but at the same time, I think it was one of the first games to get really widespread appeal that wasn't part of this old school crunchy war game mode. So I wouldn't be surprised if there were a lot of other designers who really kind of had their eyes open to how few rules you could get away with having in a game by Vampire, which is funny because Vampire has loads of rules, but less than Dungeon Dragon. And that's the thing about crunch is that it can come up in a whole bunch of different ways. Vampire might not have as many types of rules as Dungeons and Dragons does, especially if we're talking about the third edition 
era. You don't have separate grappling rules and fighting rules and cover rules and like particularly complicated movement rules or all of the things that go into spell casting and components. But you do have so many skills. Yeah. <laughs> and you have so many factions and political bits that you can go to and different types of vampires you can be that get different types of abilities and ways to interface with the world. Yeah. So it still ends up feeling like there's just so much stuff in it. It is a very stuffful game, for sure. I have a debate that I would like to table. Okay. How crunchy is Lancer? Medium hard. Medium hard. Compared to, like, Battletech, mm. it's not really, I mean, Battletech is way crunchier than Lancer, especially yeah. old school Battletech. Battletech is also a game that has barely been changed for 30 years, because if you try to change it, people who like Battletech don't want you to, because they like Battletech. Yeah. I don't know as much about Battletech as you two do. I do know that mech games are infamously crunchy. And earlier when we were talking about a game being complicated without being crunchy, I was kind of thinking that Lancer kind of fits that bill. Yeah. Because Lancer's manual is huge. There's a ton in there. But a lot of what's in there is lore, which is very complex. Yes. By the standards of mech games, there aren't that many different rules, especially since virtually everything you do when you're not in a mech is a d20 roll. Mm -hmm. And most of the crunch is in combat, and it relates to turn order and to actions and reactions and cover and line of sight and the range of weapons and those sorts of things. Mm. All things that are, well... I'm not going to say straightforward, but come out fairly reasonably, in my opinion, if you play it on a square grid. Mm. Yeah. But are you really playing a mech game without hexes? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm just going to say it. I enjoy hexes more than, a, more than the square grid, just okay. in general. Okay. Tell us why hexagons are the future. Please tell us. So the deep, dark secret to hexagons is that they're not actually hexagons. They're circles that are mushed up against each other. That's the actual <laughs> secret of hexagons is that they're circles. But also just the fact that like hexagons, if you are going to do something relating to distance or if you're going to make positioning a big part of your game, hexagons just look, they work better. They're less crunchy. There, I said it. Just in my mind, I have a lot easier time drawing distances across hexagons. And yes, I know things like D&D &D basically say to ignore Pythagoras's theorem, just use whatever. Like, I, I get that. But you don't have to do that on a hex. Well, I guess it's not. Yeah, hex grid. Does that work? I think that is works. It, is it a hex that grid? Works. Like, I, I don't think that any of us are qualified to try to do rigorous <laughs> mathematical definitions about how various shapes tile a plane or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But the point is, hexagons tile the best. That's why they're the future. And they're just, it's easier to do distance and that sort of thing on a hex grid. I think objectively mm -hmm. speaking, they're the past, my dude. <laughs> <laughs> 
then then how come all sci-fi is nothing but hexagons? Answer me that. <laughs> Riddle me that, Batman. Okay, no, you did get me. You did, in fact, get me. Okay, <laughs> valid. But hexagons being the past kind of brings me into something that I'd kind of like to talk about, which is like, I mentioned a couple times that crunch is value neutral. It's not a good or a bad thing to add to your game. It's a matter of personal preference. But it is not a fashionable thing to add to your game. No, it it comes and goes like everything else. Yeah. I think the indie sphere is kind of returning to crunch now after a prolonged uh, allergy. Well, right now it's sort of a countercultural thing. Like we were talking with, um, like, Oscar spam revival mm. games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't go with swing revival? Mm. I should have gone with Oscar swing revival. Alas. But it's true. It's a countercultural thing. And while it's kind of a very, I don't want to say backward facing because that's that sounds a little dismissive. But the OS stands for old school. Like it's very specifically a subculture or a counterculture within TTRPGs about recapturing the feeling of classic D&D pre-third edition, preferably. Totally. Yeah, see, I, I get around all that just by playing Warhammer. <laughs> That'll do it. Mm-hmm. I'll get it out of your system. <laughs> it also gets my Nick wants to roll like 70 dice at once out of his system as well. <laughs> yeah, it'll do that. <laughs> because there's a lot of things to enjoy about crunch. Like yeah. rolling each of your weapons to hit and then rolling where each of them hit and then rolling damage in a game like Battletech can cause this huge chain of events that is super exciting. You get really cool dice streaks. It's uh, thinking about all of the various things going on, like is rich and rewarding for your brain when you're engaging with it. Mm -hmm. I like the way very crunchy games kind of take the outcomes out of my hands. Mm -hmm. So you're like, roll, roll. I guess there's a cave in crap. And that's, um, there's emergent play that comes through the improv skills of the people around the table. And then there's the emergent play that comes from the dice being the ones in charge. And I think they're both just delightful and, and very fun. There's a dialectic, to misuse the word, mm. between friction and accessibility sometimes. Yeah. Because friction in, like, designy terms is not always a bad thing. Friction can be the site of where interesting stuff happens. It can be the place that sparks emergent gameplay or sparks memories of things just going in a way that you didn't expect it to. And, and I think that that's one of the things that OSR games are really striving towards and really wanting to recapture because those standout moments stand out for a reason. Absolutely. I mean, a very good example of that is, I mean, look at the big game that everybody's talking about right now, the good old Elden Ring. Mm -hmm. That is a game of intentional friction at many points in it. And obviously some people don't like that, and I'm not going to disagree with them because, yeah, a lot of the intentional points of friction are super annoying, but 
a lot of those points of friction are there by design, and people like that. Mm -hmm. The feeling of overcoming has a lot of value. Yeah. I saw a really interesting interview recently with Nick Butler, the designer behind Tidebreaker, was on um, Spencer Campbell's Coffee Break, and was talking a lot about loving narrative gameplay, but as a big fighting game fan, having a craving for tactical strategic combat and kind of designing Tidebreaker to combine those two principles. And I absolutely like pre-ordered Tidebreaker on the spot and fell in love because that's my sentiments exactly. Crunchy games give you an opportunity to play them like games, to try to win at them, to make tactical and strategic decisions. And I find that very, very rules-like games don't give me that. And so I, I find a lot of, for example, Powered by the Apocalypse games pretty unsatisfying. Not because of anything wrong that they did, but just because like, I like games that are crunchy enough to give me some resistance, basically, <laughs> so that I can um, exercise my brain a little bit, take my little brainsy out for a walk, get out some of its extra energy, take it to the brain park. Yeah, there was a, and I don't know if it's still a big thing now, but God, what uh a little over a decade ago, there was the eight kinds of fun that was something put forth. I forget the guy who did it, but basically it stated that there's more than, you know, obviously one way to have fun. And I don't know how true it is or isn't. I never really read that into it, but it posited that things like, you know, tactical combat are a type of fun that thinking around problems, you know, and finding interesting and creative solutions is for a lot of people a big part of games. It is for me too. Like, again, I've played card games and war games and that kind of stuff forever now. So I love that sort of thing. Uh, I think you've said something very important is that there's a series of multiple different levels on which a person can enjoy a TTRPG. Well, multiple different types of fun that can be applied to virtually anything that a person enjoys. But despite it being a little out of fashion, Less so now than five years ago. But uh, crunchy games offer a different kind of fun to games that are, uh, that have less friction, as Kathleen put it. Games that aren't about testing what your brain can do with the numbers and more about telling a story without resistance and getting your fun out of the emergent improvisation and the role play, which is also perfectly valid. Games purely in that strain are not my cup of tea, but they are, they're valid and beautiful. Hmm. Because there's something to be said about flow, too. When you're playing a game, it can feel really good to just be able to know what you're going to do and have each thing feed into the next thing and be like, okay, I know where I'm going here. You hit that serotonin loop there of, I know what I want to do. I did the thing. It was cool. I got rewarded for it. I get to do the next thing. Mm -hmm. Having a tight gameplay loop, a real smooth gameplay loop, can be great. Yeah. Like, I'll, I'll dunk on Dungeon Dragon because I'm an indie TTRPG designer and it is our official pastime. We do more dunking on Dungeon Dragon than we do of designing other games. And we design a lot of other games. Yeah, there's a quota that they have to meet. Absolutely. But 
the same time, the people who like Dungeons and Dragons love Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> that game's got diehard fans who make it their personality and diehard fans who enjoy it a normal and reasonable amount. <laughs> like, I'm not going to dunk on D&D fans because D&D is a perfectly valid kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Do I feel like it's as effective at pursuing the kinds of fun it offers as it could be? No. No, I don't. But it has a very particular balance of narrativist and simulationist principles, smooth and crunchy principles, that really hits some people in the right spot. And I know it's very similar to the balance I was going with for Heroic Chord. Obviously, I was a little more on the creamy side than D&D is, but I like narrativist games with resistance. Mm -hmm. And all of those things operate in different forms. I think that as I see it, a key design principle, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's a principle as much as it's a thing that's fallen out of Heroic Chords design that I love, is that characters operate in a crisis situation pretty much like they operate outside of a crisis situation. Mm -hmm. You're still using the same sorts of skills and doing the same sort of things. There's just a different kind of pressure being put on things. And I think that's great. Oh, yay. I have a heroic chord character. I still feel like it's the same character, even when I am outrunning a lava flow or fighting a lesser daemon or something. Yeah. There's definitely a difference between a game being combat focused and a game being crunchy. It's difficult to articulate, though, isn't it? <laughs> mm hmm. It's, it's oh. not an easy, but I think that in games where I know what it is, crunch isn't always uniformly distributed through a game. It's that layer on top of the macaroni sometimes. Sometimes it's the layer on top of the macaroni. Dungeons and Dragons, for example, is very crunchy in combat, virtually nothing outside. Lancer has a similar distribution where combat is full of rules, has multiple ways of resolving outcomes, and out of combat is less so. Not entirely hand-waved, that wouldn't suit either game, but with much less rules support. The result is that if you're going to build a character optimized for not combat in D&D, you're going to have a bad time. Because the rules aren't meant to support out of combat. Most of the crunch is isolated within combat. I'm not going to say you're going to have a bad time, but you're, you know what I mean, listener. Listener, you know what I mean. There's a high chance that you'll have a bad time. There's a high chance. And Dungeons and Dragons doesn't want you to make a non-combat character. You can, but D&D doesn't want you to do it. You can make a character in Lancer who isn't a mech pilot, but Lancer doesn't want you to do that. I'm not sure if you can make a character in Lancer who's not a Lancer. Mm. Huh. Okay, well, that's that's beside the point. <laughs> that's, not, that's not where my brain needs to be right now. <laughs> Cat's obstinance routines are light. <laughs> yeah, right? Absolutely. Just overheating. One thing I would like to touch on you don't really run into this when your game isn't very crunchy, but balance. Like in a very narrative game, balance basically doesn't exist. 
I mean, okay, maybe one of the characters can, you know, like always succeeds at something or can turn into a giant wolf or something like that. And the other person's like, well, I have a special pair of shoes that don't get dirty. You know, and and narratively, there's not a whole lot you can do with your shoes that never get dirty versus the person who can turn into a wolf. Like, even not putting numbers to that, you know, there's a bit of a discrepancy. But if you, the thing though is, if you do put numbers to it, then you have to go, okay, well, if I still want this person to have these shoes, we're going to have to throw some real big numbers at them. And,. I think that's where a lot of folks get burned on crunch is balance is hard. And when games aren't balanced, somebody isn't going to have fun. You know, like it's not a given, but, you know, like in D&D, take early fifth edition, for instance, where the ranger was not good. Like ranger was not very good. It didn't do a whole lot of things that the game wanted characters to do. You know, it wasn't very action efficient. It had okay damage, that sort of thing. Like, you could you could make some interesting builds with it, but most of the stuff that it did, you could get another class to do it better. And the things that you really wanted to do that it was unique about just were kind of whatever. And you can still have fun with a character like that in a very combat, not, you know, focused game. You know, like, I have this special animal who's my friend and... You know, they're always with me and I live in the woods and all this other stuff. Like, you can do plenty of outside of combat things with that. I mean, heck, some of the most fun in a heroic chord is watching Pollyanna and Penelope interact. I love them. They're beautiful. But, you know, in D&D, obviously, like, Polly would have to have her own stat block and a whole bunch of other things. And if her stat block kind of sucks... You know, then it's like, well, okay, am I going to have fun playing the Cavalier? Because even though I get the fun, like, flying elk, is it just going to get, like, KO'd every fight because it has three hit points or something? You know, and I'm, I'm exaggerating here, obviously, for effect, but you do have to take balance into account. Because if a game wants you to interact with it from a numbers perspective, then the numbers have to feel good for everybody. I wonder if that has anything to do with why Crunch fell out of favor in the indie scene for a while. The more systems you have with numbers, the more work you have to do on those numbers. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, balance is hard as it turns out. Balance is not easy. I don't think games need to be perfectly balanced. But I do think that the crunchier your game is, the more it is a concern, yes. Because you don't want... To put all your work into these cool abilities and have one be strictly better than the other and one of them never sees any use. That's a bummer. <laughs> oh, man, I'm thinking about the uh, war stories from that same game design group. Yeah. Like it's, uh, was it, though? if it Dustin took the same ability on every character that you knew it was a problem or was it, it was, somebody else? That was Sean. <laughs> it was Sean. Yeah. Yeah. It, that was our rule is if uh, if he put it on every character, we needed to address that. If he never used it, we needed to address that. <laughs> Cold mechanical mind. Ruthless power gamer. The kind of play tester you love to see. But at the same time, like you look at a Lumen game, which is not particularly crunchy, but very combat focused, which is an interesting combination. It's not something you see a lot game that revolves around combat but isn't necessarily as married to 
having deep systems for every potential outcome. And Spencer Campbell's gone on the record as saying he doesn't care about balance and that's not a priority for him. And yeah, it's fiddly work. And I cannot blame anyone who wants to jettison that. It's not a wrong choice. But it is a choice that you make in less crunchy games more easily than you make in crunchier ones. So Lumen uh, fills this really interesting space for me of a game that like feels crunchier than it is. It's a combat game, so it's got a lot of numbies, but it's not fiddly. It's meant to be kind of fast and loose, so I like Lumen games. Yeah. And for me, I think crunch often just comes down to the number of systems you're interacting with. Yeah. That's the long and short of it, yeah. Thinking of kind of where I was going with my balance thing is, at the end of the day, if you make a system with a lot of crunch, you are going to have more points of failure. Like, I think that's sort of the main takeaway, I would say, about making a crunchier system, is that the more moving parts something has, the more chances it has of screwing up somewhere. Not that you shouldn't make a really crunchy game, but... There's going to be a lot of work on that end of it to make sure things don't fall apart. Whereas, you know, obviously on a very narrative game, you know, Lasers and Feelings, it has two stats or Ghost Echo. Which has no stats. Which has no stats. Like, there's not a whole lot of moving parts going on there. You have, I mean, in Ghost Echo, you have, what, one? You roll your two dice? And sometimes a third. And sometimes a third. Like, if that mechanic doesn't work... That's the entire game, and so you will come up with a different mechanic. Whereas it can be fun to find ridiculously, you know, overpowered combinations in games. I mean, there are YouTube channels out there about going through and making the most hilarious infinite attacks D&D characters you can find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a genuine pastime for some folk. Mm-hmm. And this actually brings up something that I was going to bring up earlier, but I forgot about for a while. And that is, crunch is the difference between lasers and feelings and honey heist. On a micro scale, on a Mm -hmm. tiny scale, honey heist has one more rule, two more rules, technically, than lasers and feelings. It turns the, the spectrum stat structure of lasers and feelings into a sliding scale that you can move along. And it adds failure chances for reaching either end of that scale. And I think that's why I like Honey Heist better. I like that it has more rules. (laughs) Just slightly more crunch, like the difference between flan and creme brulee. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. It's just a, it's a whisper more crunch, but in games that minimalistic, it's noticeable. Maybe it says something that I like flan and creme brulee, but I'm not a big toffee fan. (laughs) <laughs> Although peanut brittle's not too bad, so I don't know. I think confections and tabletop game preferences don't really align. But maybe if you squint. <laughs> I like toffee more than I like caramel or butterscotch. Mm-hmm. Like a good dark English toffee. Mm. Like with, with a lot of like these bitter burnt molasses notes. <laughs> I love that stuff. <sighs> Every time. Listener, what TTRPGs and confections do you like? Mm. 
Can you find any parallels between the two? Yeah, and, and which of the two do you have to pick out of your teeth afterwards? What's the crunchiest ice cream you like? Mine's cookies and cream. You can tell us the answers to these and any other of the questions we've posed at the end of any number of episodes by tracking us down on Twitter at PeachGardenRPGs or finding us on our website at PeachGardenGames.com. We have a link in our Twitter to the Heroic Discord where you can talk to other Harmony Drive designers and Heroic Chord fans and Sort of Symphonies fans. And that is a good place for cool people. You can also find us on the Be Gay Roll and Dice Network Discord, a great place to hang out if you like podcasts. And if you really like confections and would like to give us some, uh, we do have a Patreon and a Ko-fi link that you can find on our webpage. You can only send us money, not confections, but we're probably going to spend it on candy anyway. You, you can leave a note saying that we should spend it on candy. You can. You can. You can. So, thank you very much for listening to us today. Yeah. Bye, listener. Bye. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Be gay. Roll dice. An LGBTQIA actual play podcast network. The year is 2225, and the end of the universe is nigh. Welcome to the Junket Podcast. The Junket Podcast is an actual play and really gay TTRPG adventure currently running the Maelstrom campaign, a science fiction take on Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition featuring spaceships, space aliens, and a whole bunch of space gays. Follow a found family of misfits and miscreants on a cosmic caper that features science and magic, love, loss, and a whole lot of laughter. Who knows, maybe they'll even save the universe or something along the way. Did that tickle your fancy? If it did, new episodes launch every other Thursday at 5pm GMT on all major and minor podcasting platforms. See you soon in the Maelstrom Galaxy. Love this podcast? Hoping to find more? Pride 2022, join us for the Rainbow Roll Fest. Listen to your favorite LGBTQIA-led actual play podcasts and find new ones as we show off what this vibrant scene has to offer and raise money to help mermaids protect and nurture trans youth. Mark your calendars. Rainbow Roll Fest runs June 18th through 19th, 2022. Find us on Twitter at Rainbow Roll Fest. Are you an LGBTQIA creator with an actual play podcast? Applications are now open from February 15th to March 31st for the Rainbow Roll Fest. Showcase your podcast charms however you like with live play, audience Q&A, or screenings. Plus, help us raise money for Mermaids to benefit trans youth in the UK. 
Rainbow Roll Fest runs June 18th through 19th, 2022. Find us on Twitter at Rainbow Roll Fest.